Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Riley, I'm excited to talk to you today about the Logos. You brought it up as a potential topic. You were reading some commentary on John, on 1 John, 1 John, right? From Yogananda, is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, among other things. And yeah. I don't know that I really thought this through when I offered it up as a potential candidate for a show topic. Yeah, well, that came up when we talked about a pre-show. And, and we ended up postponing. And here we are back to record. We talked about Heraclitus, too. And... Then Paul Tillich, you had been you had read some Paul Tillich. I've I've been reading one of his disciples, Thomas Cathcart, has a new book, and yeah, there's something here to talk about in the logos. In the beginning was the logos. Yeah, maybe we'll just hit different aspects of it, and um, you know, try to give people insight beyond the surface level understanding of logos that maybe most people are uh, are familiar with. When I first encountered this term, it was really just, I took for granted that logos equaled Jesus. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's just a word that basically means Jesus. Well, what does logos mean? Logos means a spoken word or, or a word, if, to be even more simple about it. But what, what does that actually mean to say that Jesus is a word? And so I never really dug deeper into that until, you know, kind of, diving in a little deeper myself in the last few years. And there's there's a lot of depth to that. I mean, this is something that has been debated by theologians since those words were written by, by John the Beloved. And trying to figure that out is probably more than we can do in one episode. But what we'd like to do is just start to scratch the surface of the various ways that can be understood or interpreted. And so maybe to begin... Chris, do you mind if I just read this section from the Gospel of John? That's a great place to start. Let's do that. And I'll just preface it by saying that John is a little different from the other Gospel writers. And I think most people understand this. There's the Synoptic Gospels, which is the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's John. And they they recount different parts of Jesus's life. Sometimes they overlap. There are harmonies that can tell you, you know, exactly which parts are overlapping. But John takes a different tack than the other three writers. His is a much more mystical approach to Jesus and what his life meant, not just who he was and the things that he did, but like, what was the Jesus meaning? What was the meaning of Jesus the Christ? And so this this hits different than the other Gospels in some ways, and you won't find this same language in the Synoptic Gospel uh, writers. So I'll just go ahead and read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then it goes on to talk a little bit about John and his relationship to to Jesus. But those first five verses or so talking about the Word are they're pretty abstract for most people, unless you just take for granted that Jesus is the Word. And if you just replace Word with Jesus through those first five verses, oh, okay, now I get it. And you just kind of roll right through without, again, applying much depth or thought to what that actually means for Jesus to be the Word, the Word of God. So that's where we hope to sort of scratch a little deeper and find out what's below the surface. Yeah, and there's a there's a definitely an echo of Heraclitus in that opening line from First John. Heraclitus is an ancient Greek philosopher, a pre-Socratic philosopher. The pre-Socratic philosophers 
their project really is to try to come up with an explanation of some kind of analysis of everything that is. And typically it's one thing, you know, some would say, you know, there's one philosopher says it's everything comes from water. Another one says, you know, it comes from we get the atomic principle comes out in the pre-Socratic philosophers. And then you have Heraclitus who says fire, and you have Parmenides saying, you know, giving the four elements, the traditional four elements, one of which is fire. But Heraclitus's idea of fire is different. It's not that, it's not the same one as Parmenides. It's not that, that fire that burns. It's more of a psychological principle. It's something that, that isn't a literal fire. It's, it's not metaphysical at all. The, the rest of these guys are up to something metaphysical in terms of explaining things, whereas Heraclitus is taking a more psychological approach. Yeah, Heraclitus isn't trying to give you some kind of ontology, you know, building one step upon another of, of what was that original motivating act or, or, or actor. He's, he's essentially saying that everything that we know of is fire. It's constantly in flux. It constantly changes. So something is, and it also isn't. Something is up and something is down at the same time. And so it's a very mystical approach to the philosoph- the philosophy of, of science, really. Yeah. And uh, also on Heraclitus, to give a little more of the, the Sitzenleben of Heraclitus, right? The, his context, right? His context is he's writing at the same time as Gautama Buddha. And by the way, he's also a prince. Heraclitus is a prince who, like Gautama Buddha, sort of withdraws from that. You know, he has the right to be a king, and he withdraws from that and becomes a philosopher, just like Gautama Buddha did to become the the Buddha as we know him. He's writing at the same time also as Lao Tzu, who's the author of the Tao Te Ching, and Confucius. Uh, and, And again, we've mentioned in past episodes somewhere that if you look at Confucius and Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu is giving you the esoteric and Confucius the esoteric. In Confucius, you get something like this this law that you live, kind of like, you know, if you would just take that on its own, you might be something like a Pharisee. But Lao Tzu gives you the, the esoteric, the inner dimension of that way of living. And at the same time, we're getting, you know, it's something, it's poetic. There's something poetic about Heraclitus. And it's very much, it's wisdom literature, right? It really is. And it's so it's like the Proverbs uh, and Ecclesiastes and Job and the Bible in that sense. So according to Heraclitus, what, what is this logos? What does it represent? It really is a principle, as, as you've said, Riley, you know, it's this principle that says that it, there's two senses, I think, in which we can think about the logos, right? In one way, the logos is a reality, at least it's a psychological explanation of reality, because again, it's not metaphysical. It's the way things are. But there's another sense of logos because it does translate from the Greek into English as word, and it can also translate rational principle, sentence, paragraph. So think language, right? So there's a reality that you can describe in language, and so then that's another sense of logos. There's there's the logos that's the organizing principle which actually in a Heraclitian way includes, it's a conjunction of opposites because anything you can say, you can also say the opposite. Heraclitus is famous for saying that you can never step into the same river twice. And so in a sense, he recognizes that it's still the same river, but the water that you stepped into in that river earlier is now gone. And it's again and again, it becomes a new river. Yeah, the ripples have changed, the rocks have moved, the the weather has changed on the surface of the water. There's, there's so much around it that's influencing it that it's never the same river twice. Yeah, so if we want to actually pin a metaphysical interpretation on Heraclitus, it's really this flux. He wants to say that everything is flux. Everything's in movement. Everything's constantly changing. And so when you go to describe it, that's another sense of logos because now you're using words. So we can equate this to the experience of God that, say, a prophet has in actually coming into contact with the divine versus that prophet then putting in writing what is actually ineffable, what actually can't be put into words. Yeah, it's always insufficient, you know, to try to describe an experience that's unique, that is ecstatic. And I think the lesson we can learn from Heraclitus is that whatever is there in words, first of all, it's not the actual, that logos is not the same as the logos that's the, the reality that is being put into words. They're different, right? One thing is the reality itself. Another thing is an expression of it 
in that other kind of logos, which is just language. And the second thing we can take away from it, if we remember what Heraclitus is telling us, is that whatever is, is there in black and white on paper, so to speak, you could actually look at in another way. So you have multivalency of interpretation possible, and you even have, which extends all the way to the opposite even of what is being said uh, on the face of it, right? These are the possibilities that there are. Where again, if Jesus or if if the word is Jesus, then at the same time, there's more to the word than Jesus. There's more to Christ than Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, and yet so is Private Desmond Doss, for example. I don't know if you know the story of Desmond Doss, Riley, the the nonviolent private who goes into World War II because he wants to do, I don't know, what everybody else is doing around him. He feels some sense of duty toward his country. Um, there's this threat of, you know, of Nazism and and yet he has this commitment to nonviolence born from his own from his own Christianity and from his experience with violence uh, when he was younger and his own fear of his of, of the own potential of being harmful of actually harming someone else and so he goes into this and when i'm watching this movie it's called hacksaw ridge which is the story of private desmond doss and i see private desmond doss coming toward me to toward hacksaw ridge carrying one more, yet another wounded man that he's then going to lower down this ridge, I just can't help but see a Christ. And and it's not Jesus, it's Desmond Doss. Right. And, and so what you're doing now is you're differentiating between the title ascribed to Jesus and Jesus the man. And I think in the application of this principle of the Logos, we we sort of miss that. We miss that aspect of what it means to be the Christ and what it means to be the Logos. Yeah, if, if Jesus is the Christ and he's saying to me, come follow me, be therefore perfect even as I am perfect. First he says, even as your Father in heaven. In the Book of Mormon we get, even as I, after his resurrection. The meaning, of course, we've talked about how Jesus is resurrected before he dies. Some say we mistake in talking about a resurrection after death when Jesus is resurrected before he dies. But it is after his earthly ministry that he says, be therefore perfect even as I am perfect. And he's asking us to follow him. Then in some sense, we can become Christ. And that's very much in line with our theology, right? That we, that we become saviors on Mount Zion. And Private Desmond Doff certainly was a savior. And I think that's at least part of what's trying to be communicated by John in, in using this principle of Logos to describe what Jesus was accomplishing or who he was as the Christ. So the principle of Logos is sort of an attempt to bridge the gap between where we are and where God is. Christ is that mediator of the at one the, the the unification of the creation with the Creator. If Jesus is that mediator then he's helping us to bridge the gap between material, immaterial, spoken, ineffable, um, whatever other opposites you can think of, right? All the opposites that, that we know that Heraclitus saw as conjoined, because at the same time you can say, this is the same river, you could also say it's not. Yeah, you could look at a set of stairs and say, oh, those stairs go up until you're on top, and then you look at them and, oh, those stairs go down. They're the same set of stairs. Right, you know, I'm reminded of a headline that, uh, Shiloh Logan shared with me right before we we got together to record this show where Jeff Bezos donated however much money he donated. And on the one hand, there was a headline. There were two different headlines that Shiloh shared with me. One, he was praised for donating this much money. In another one, the same amount of money he donated, it was said that he was um, excoriated. I, I'm, I'm using my own words, but it's the same money. And some praise him and some criticize him for giving that. And It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective, yeah. If you're on the top, the stairs go down. If you're on the bottom, the stairs go up. Yeah. So one of the things that Heraclitus said that sort of sums this up is he says, from the strain of binding opposites comes harmony or union. From the strain of binding opposites comes harmony. Yeah, and this is very much a, a union you know, mysterium conjunctionis, mystery of conjunction idea, the idea, and it really is, it relates to the garden. It's going back to the garden. It, when we come out of the innocence of the garden, which is really 
a way of seeing everything as one, which is a very right-brained way of seeing the world, by the way, and that's accessible to us. You know, I remember reading about someone who actually had an experience of really seeing the world that way after having had a stroke, and it changed everything. And, and I think this person has a TED Talk. I can't remember her name. Well, there is, there is someone out there who had this experience, and the idea, and Karen Armstrong covers this in, too in her book, The Lost Art of Scripture, where the religious experience, the experience of the divine, which, by the way, isn't really separable from the experience of everything else in the world, all of it, is that. It's just that. It's that everything is one. And the, the left brain sees things more as separable. And both are true. And it's interesting that we have in this microcosm that we call our, our bodies, we have both. We have the left brain and we have the right brain, and they work together. And they conjoin those opposites in some sense. And yet they also create this contradiction, which is what it means to live in duality. And so in this duality, we experience things as separate, when in reality, perhaps we can say they're not separate. And we're taught that in our religion that we need to see the opposite. We need to see bad to know good. Well, I don't think that they're necessarily that separable. You know what I mean? It's, it's, they're two sides of the same coin, and it really just depends. And we've talked about that, you know, we've covered the Chinese farmer story. It's really hard for us in our own limited perspective to even know what's good, ultimately, because whatever happens, we don't know where that's going to end up. You know, you've, you're on to something, because in this idea of opposites, everyone recognizes, at least they have experiential knowledge of what is pleasure and what is pain. But yet, they also have the same experience that sometimes pain brings forth, forth pleasure, and pleasure sometimes brings forth pain. Um, good and evil, hot and cold, and so forth, they're all relative terms relative to each other that help us to experience the full spectrum. And it's that full spectrum that encompasses the truth, not one side or the other. And so it's, it's, very, it's very Eastern thought um, that is, is what Heraclitus is kind of most paralleling here is that it, like in Vedic thought, for instance, the there are balancing mechanisms, balancing forces that help keep, you know, the universe basically in balance and one without the other. And all of a sudden this universe is out of balance. And so you have in, in Vedic thought, you have this, this idea of Maya or delusion. The delusion is that that the opposites or that the separateness of the universe creates aspects in and of themselves that encompass a certain reality when truthfully those are not realities without the opposites they they only have any meaning in the context of the other and so with this idea of logos basically being the creating um, power of of the universe it created its own opposite so that we would have the context to understand the whole. But it doesn't make a judgment about one or the other. Right. And so I think the project of humanity, of coming into this duality, really culminates in our divinization, if you will, by going back out of that into unity. And so again, when you think of those, the cherubim and the flaming swords, like the threshold guardians of a, of a Buddhist temple, usually dragons, one with the open mouth, one with the closed mouth, one representing ah, the other mm, which is the same thing as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. When you go past those threshold guardians, back into the garden, which is pardis, is the, it's the Farsi word, Persian word for a walled garden, and you find at the center of that tree in the Buddhist temple, you have the Buddha sitting under the tree, and the, in the Genesis myth, you have the fruit of the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ, which is the love of God, which is this logos again. The project is really is to return to the garden and to actually see, to, to conjoin all these opposites and to see things as they are, which is the truth is encompasses all things. Truth is round, I like to say. I just got done watching a movie with my kids called News of the World. Did you see this show with Tom Hanks? No, I haven't. It came out during the pandemic. It was released on streaming only, I think. But it's a Tom Hanks show, and he's 
he's come in contact with this this white girl who was her, her parents were uh, settlers who had moved in on some Indian territory. Her parents were killed. She was le- kept alive, adopted by the Indians. One of these stray white kid type stories, right? But it's it goes a little deeper than that, and hopefully it it conveys a better message than maybe some of these that have been done in the past. But he's attempting, he's sort of quasi-adopted her. And in the course of getting to know her, he's trying to speak her Indian language, which is all she knows, really. And, you know, he's he's speaking English, and they're trying to communicate back and forth. And so they're doing so with gestures to try to indicate what a word means. And at one point, she essentially describes the universe in terms of a circle. And he said, oh, I understand. Well, it's hard for me to relate to that. It's hard for my people to relate to that because we're very much straight line, direct, um, and there's very linear. Linear, yes, exactly, rather than circular. And, and I think what he was doing was sort of describing, quote-unquote, Western thought, even though he's talking to a Native American uh, adoptee, right? Yeah, certainly since um, since the Enlightenment, which I recently read from Michael Pollan in his book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, has a lot to do with caffeine. Caffeine brought about, you know, first of all, before caffeine, what were people drinking all day? Because you couldn't drink the water, it wasn't safe. And the answer is wine. And so there's a little bit of a stupor of thought there with that. There's certainly not, you certainly don't get algebra from that. So with the Muslims uh, drinking coffee, you get algebra and you get this whole very left brain approach, right? And so there's there's a blessing and a curse here, right? Again, there's two sides to this because you have the right brain and you have the left brain and the discarded image, as C.S. Lewis calls it, of the medieval mind uh, gives way to this caffeinated, left-brained logical, straightforward mind. It's funny because earlier you mentioned Heraclitus as Eastern, I think you said, and and mystical in some sense, right? I think you used both words. And he's at the birth of Western philosophy. And it's really not clear, actually, you know, whether Western philosophy actually comes from the East. It seems that way. And at the same time, it's not clear. I know, for example, Peter Kingsley has a book, Ancient Philosophy, Mystery and Magic, where he argues and this is published by Oxford. It's, it was his PhD dissertation. And, and he goes on, he actually leaves scholarship for guruship and writes a few more books. And he becomes a mystic. And, and you can go watch him on YouTube. And, and he has some interesting things to say. But he's arguing that Parmenides and Empedocles were mystics, that they're telling, that they're telling a lie. It's interesting to read these guys. And it's poetry. You're talking about philosophy. Same with Heraclitus's fragments that come down to us. They're all poetical. And they're very aphoristic. You know, there's this talk of, oh, we we have a, a book of Heraclitus. Well, we don't have it. It's lost, right? All we have are these fragments. But I just don't know that there, how can we know that there's actually a book? I don't know that there really is a book. I, I see these fragments and they're very aphoristic and they just make these prophetic like declarations of this is the way things are. And they're just like, it's just like reading the Tao Te Ching. They're these paradoxical statements of of the nature of reality that are very much, again, conjoining opposites. The mystery of conjunction, of the marriage of heaven and earth, of the, the nature of the, of the opposites being conjoined, and the nature of reality being one, where all of these things are one. And so it's not really the usual way we think, and it's very much a right-brained approach to the world. It's very much what mysticism or contemplation is about. That's why we're here talking about it, right? Because the, the left brain gives us you know, the scribes and the scriptures and the writing, and, and, we, and that's important. And yet there's something that's in between the lines because the experience of the divine is ineffable. It's not all there. We've talked about using the scriptures as a jumping off point. This, the scriptures can take us into a mode of, of experiencing the reality that's not actually in the words. It's not actually in that logos, but it's in this other logos and this principle I remember, you know, looking at what you read from Yogananda, I remember you saying, and he wrote commentary on, on First John, right? So you, you read it, you told me about your experience of it. And when I read it, I noted very distinctly, I didn't mention this pre-show, that I didn't have the same experience you had. And yet I could see, I just knew from what you said, and I got it. I was like, okay, Riley had this experience of reading this that I'm not having because I'm taking this analytical approach of let me understand what Riley read and why he's saying what he's saying. That's different from your devotional reading. 
isn't it? Well, yeah, and and I guess what you're getting at is kind of the heart of this whole question. There's not much that's compelling about sort of the left brain uh, metaphysical progression from one fact to another. That's that's essentially memorization. That's that straight line, linear Western thought approach to things. And honestly, it's not that compelling. It might be fascinating to see how one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, but compelling, not so much, at least for me. To me, original thought and seeing, like the reason why Heraclitus or the Zen Koans or the Bhagavad Gita are interesting is because they present you with sets of opposites and essentially tell you they're the same. And you're like, how? <laughs> That's confusing. But they're they're intentionally engaging your mind beyond the limits of that that linear thought. Yeah, and I know for many, if and if this applies to you, uh, dear listener, you know you you may just reject these offhand. This is an invitation to go into the, some of these writings and to really be open to them. Just be open to the possibility of what these authors are saying, because the, this is really where where the contemplation rubber meets the road in going into these kind of these kind of writings and experiencing some sense of what is being what what is trying to be put forward and and get and gotten across. Right. So you have someone like Meister Eckhart in the 1300s. That's you know, he's a devoted Christian, obviously. He's, you know, that's his that's his whole life. And yet he's telling his apprentices and those learning from him, his students, to reject the very notions you have of God. That must have been shocking for them. Eliminate the very idea of God. Now, that there's a key word there, obviously, idea, because our ideas right. of God are what end up defining God for us. And in other words, we're we're being idolatrous. We're making God in our image versus letting God be God and having an experience with that. That's the difference between, you know, the, the contemplative approach, the mystical approach to God and, you know, the fact-based, you know, memorization or whatever that a lot of Western traditions kind of the space they play in. Yeah, creeds, articles of faith. Exactly. Um, you know, that, all the memorization stuff, the catechisms. Theology, right. Catechisms, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's not what the that's not what an experience of God is about. It's none of that. It, and it may it may include all of that. It may include all of that, but it's not just that. Right. There's so much more to God that we can experience and we have to be willing to set aside those preconceived notions that we have and when we when we make these symbols that are the the logos, you know, the the expression in language of God into God, that's idolatry. Right? We've made the symbol the referent rather than realizing that the symbol points to a reality beyond itself. Well, and in this case, the symbol is simplified all the way down to the most basic that you can get, which is essentially letters. Letters organized into a word, you know, and, and that's as simple a symbol as you could possibly get, as a, a letter representing a sound. And that sound causes vibration and the vibration moves upon the void and and creates disturbances in the void and maybe pockets. And it's in those pockets that things start to fall together and creation begins to happen. And so this organization of creation begins with the most simple of symbols there is, the letters and the sounds organized together into creation. It's interesting when you talk about letters and sounds, I see again this dichotomy between, I think of the letters as left-brained and that sort of logos, and I think as of the sounds as right-brained, and this is very much the way it's talked about in in science and and in again in Karen Armstrong's book I'm reading on what is it the lost art of scripture, and so they're both in some sense logos, and yet they're different. One is there's another book that was recommended to me by Phil um, Mclemore, who we've had on the show, The Alphabet and the Goddess, I think is the title, and so the alphabet is this very much this linguistic idea and the goddess is this other more experiential reality of the of the divine a manifestation of the divine that's experienced in a way that can't be put into this alphabetical into this words into this it would just be trying to fit god in a box yeah so i think you know you've got two aspects to logos here and both are both are true at the same time both are needed both are necessary one is the spoken word 
that's aural, A-U-R-A-L, and the other one is the written word, which is the letters and the symbols that, that you're referring to, right? And, and that logos together, being brought together in the figure of Jesus as the Christ, is the bridge between the two. He's, he's pointing to experiences with symbols, with letters, with words, whether they're spoken or written. Those symbols are pointing to something else, an experience. You know, when Joseph is asked by this reporter back east, you know, what do you, what do you Latter-day Saints believe? And, you know, if you were to, if you were to put him on the spot as a Latter-day Saint and say, what is it that we believe? He's, he would probably say something along the lines of, this is speculative, of course, but come and see. Because he took people along with him on the journey of discovering God so often through experience. It was, it was the Kirtland Temple revelatory experience. It was the, the eight and the three witnesses together having an experience, spiritual or, or material or otherwise, of the plates. It was, you know, the Council of Fifty and the School of the Prophets and the, you know, you name it, any other number of experiences they had, they had together, where it's, whether it's, you know, trying to organize Zion communities and whatever. People were along for the experience. Yeah, let's not forget his the experiences that he shared in receiving revelation with others and actually having a, a shared experience of receiving revelation as he did with Oliver Cowdery and with Sidney Rigdon. Yeah. At the revelation of the priesthood, at the baptisms, at, again, at the, the, the Kirtland Temple experience, all those are shared revelatory moments. And Jesus very much did the same thing. He shared these experiences when, when he was being baptized you know, John the Baptist sees it along with everyone else there, the manifestation of the Spirit and hearing the words coming from heaven, from God, the aural, the aural, A-U-R-A-L words coming from God in this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that sort of thing. So all of these are shared experiences, which is different than just the symbols. Yeah. And then here's this reporter saying, yeah, but I need something I can write down, right? <laughs> and that's, that's what the prophet has to do is put this in writing. And what does it turn into for us now in the 21st century? What do we look at the articles of faith as? I mean, it's a catechism. It's a catechism. It's a creed. It's no different. And what yeah. is it that Joseph's told at the first vision when he asked, which church should I join? Which of these churches should I join? What is he told? Join none of them for all their creeds are an abomination to me. Their creeds, Right. It's not, the, it's not the shared experiences, the transformative experiences that take place in these churches that are an abomination. It's the creeds. That are real. Totally. The, these are real experiences. They're experiences of the divine. They exist in all religions. It's the creeds. This was very much uh, acknowledged by early Latter-day Saint leaders. You know, when they would speak of Muhammad, for instance, they recognized they were speaking about a prophet, you know? So you've got... You've got Parley Pratt or Orson Hyde or whomever. When they spoke about someone like Muhammad, they recognized this guy was having experiences, and the experiences were real. And they called him a prophet. They didn't do as later uh, Latter-day Saint leaders do and say that they're inspired men. I mean, look, the, the answer is the same, right? It's, but, but the verbiage matters. How you talk about it matters, right? If you say they're inspired men, I'm saying they're less than a prophet. If I'm saying they're a prophet, that means something else. And yet it's the same thing because we're not talking about their presidents of the church. They're prophets. They're, they're men who are inspired, meaning the spirit is breathed into them, the spirit of God. And so again, these, these two logoi, inspired men, prophets, they collapse into each other in the experience of these men, which is an experience of the divine. And so in a sense, I think these early Latter-day Saints sort of understood the importance, relatively speaking, of experience as compared to the, the creeds, the catechisms, the things that we memorize and quote-unquote believe. And Jesus also bridged this gap, and I mentioned this before with some of the experiences he shared, but you have the loaves and the fishes miracle, you have the healings that he did. Probably most important of all, as an example, this would be the Mount of Transfiguration, where he takes along Peter, James, and John with him into a transformation, a physical and spiritual transformation called a transfiguration. This was the height of ecstasy, where your physical, where your, where your physical body loses some of its faculty, 
and you are transported into the spiritual realm. Yeah, I like the way you you equated the creeds and the the catechisms with beliefs. And this is different from a belief is different from an experience and it's different from faith because faith is born from experience. Beliefs are a sense. I choose to believe. That's all a belief is. I choose to believe. And so if there are the these articles of faith and if uh, a prophet tells me these are beliefs, okay, then I subscribe. I believe that too. But that's not an experience. I have to have an experience of the reality of that for it to be meaningful in, in the contemplative sense. And so that's what this conversation is about. Well, here's an example of what I think you're, you're pointing at. In, in Moroni 7.37, it says that the key of ministering of angels comes by faith. Okay, that's something you can memorize as a as a little bit of, you know, a, a little kernel of canon that, oh. You can believe it. You can believe it, right. And, and, and it can be part of your, your catechism and the things that you would affirm to be true. But, that, but it's meaningless it's unless totally you meaningless. actually put it into effect. Bingo. And experience Bingo. something, yeah. So it's, it's the description on, in written word into the scriptures of something that, is, that has to be an experience. Now, you can believe it. You can believe that it happens. But until you've experienced it, you just haven't experienced it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Is there even anything else to say? I mean, again, to say anything, this is not an experience, right? It's just words. And so we try to put these experiences into words and we try it and we get together and we turn on the microphone and we have this conversation every week and we're really just pointing. We're trying to point beyond our words to an experience, something something that we've experienced ourselves. We're not gurus, but we are seeking. And in seeking, as promised, we have found, and we've found through these experiences of the divine peace, a peace that doesn't require anything to change around us, a peace that occurs in that inner citadel that the Stoics speak of, which is impregnable, which is within, which is where the kingdom of God is, where he dwells within me. I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Chris, but you told me about an experience you've had in your home in the past week where you had a leak in your attic and it caused some some damage in the ceiling above your master bathroom and how, you know, normally this would be something that's very disconcerting, very stressful, and maybe affects how you go about your day. And yet you approached it with a certain amount of uh, dispassionate non-attachment as a result of meditation. And so if yeah. we're giving people practical advice that is also useful from a spiritual standpoint, it's that, you know, we can bridge that gap between the things that we believe and know are true, that peace comes from, for instance, the gospel or knowing knowing Christ and the peace that he can bring and actually experiencing it through communion. Yeah, it doesn't come from words and beliefs and from creeds and from catechisms and memorizing scriptures, it comes from what they all point to, which is this experience. You know, you're right, Riley, I'm not going to tell you it didn't affect me in any way. You know, it sort of got in the way of my, you know, the plumber comes and I'm not reading, I'm talking to the plumber and I made a new friend, by the way, great guy. But I was at peace. I learned over this last weekend when my ceiling literally fell in that the ceiling can fall in on you. And as long as you're not standing under it, You'll be okay if you're meditating. I felt such peace, and, it, and it's a peace that really does surpass understanding. It reminds me of my friend Sahar Kumsiya's experience of having peace in Christ, en Christos, as John likes to say, right? Um, while bombs are falling around here, and I'm not experiencing bombs, but the difference, the, the, um, the experience is not that different, right, when the ceiling caves in. And yet, I'm at peace. Yeah, to take a more extreme example, you have someone like Viktor Frankl who's writing about the peace and meaning that he still derives even in the worst of circumstances you could possibly imagine in a concentration camp, and yet he still sees meaning and purpose to life, even in those circumstances. And those who didn't, those around him who didn't, did not survive. It was, that, it was in the meaning in this that he found in the suffering that he survived. Yeah, and if there's no other message that we can get from Jesus, it's sort of that. I mean, why why else would he go all the way to the end of this earthly ministry 
uh, and have it conclude in his horrific crucifixion if he weren't pointing to something you know, below that surface. What we see on the surface is that he suffered a miserable death. But if you if you scratch below that surface a little bit, he was communicating the value and meaning to life. You know, I'm reminded of a sermon or a lerman, or I don't know what to call them when Rob Bell gives them uh, on YouTube. It's called An Introduction to Joy. It starts off like a comedy special for about an hour, and then it gradually just ever so subtly turns into a sermon on Ecclesiastes, right, where the translation he gives is, I can't remember what the King James says, but it's meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. And the message is... Vanity, I think. Vanity is, the, is what, yeah, vanity is what the, the King James Bible says. And it's, an, and it's a description of, of our experience of life. And, and so what Rob Bell does is he takes you into this meaninglessness. And he says, if you're not cynical and you don't just dip your toe into it and say, oh yeah, that's, that's bad. That's really bad. And uh, what Rob Bell says is, he says, no, 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 that's just cynical. That's just dipping your toe. And he says, it's worse than that. We're all going to die. <laughs> and you go all the way into it. You come out the other side and there's joy. And it's not the same thing as pleasure and pain and happiness and unhappiness. No, this, this joy that he speaks of and that the, the writer is pointing to in Ecclesiastes, it takes in all of the pain. It incorporates all of it. It experiences it fully and what comes out the other end is joy. It's a joy that doesn't negate any of these seeming opposites, but that conjoins them all. That calls to mind for me this quote from Paul Tillich, which I'd like to read because it really helps us dial in what this Logos principle is all about. I'm going to read it slow so we can really understand. He who sacrifices the Logos principle sacrifices the idea of a living God. And he who rejects the application of this principle to Jesus as the Christ rejects his character as Christ. So another summation of that is that, uh, in other words, without an understanding of God's love, will, and power as a living and active force in the world, through the Logos in the Christ and through our participation in the Logos with our reason, the Christian message becomes a lifeless and inconsequential set of doctrines which can be accepted or rejected without bearing on one's life. That last bit sounding a lot like the catechisms and creeds. Very much so. It's the same idea we've been expressing here. There's a couple things about this quote that really stuck out to me. One is where he says, application of this principle to Jesus as the Christ. I noticed that, as the Christ an application of the principle as the Christ, which is not saying that, that Jesus is the Christ, full stop. It's this idea that, that this applies, that the, that the idea of Christ, which Richard Rohr called, called a universal Christ, and which I expressed earlier in the personification of the Savior on Mount Zion and Private Desmond Doss, that Christ is bigger than Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. I affirm that. And yet there's more to it. Yeah, I mean, we can get, some people might listen to this and go, oh man, that's, that's full on blasphemy. You know, to, to say that Jesus isn't the Christ, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that even Jesus himself was pointing to God. He, you know, he would say, don't call me good. There is none good but God. It's the God aspect of his nature that is good. It's not him, it's, it's God. And it's available to all of us, and he's asking us to come, follow me, and be perfect, even as he is. Yeah, so he, he knows his role. He knows he's the mediator of the atonement, that he's the advocate with the Father. He's not the Father. That mediation is him trying to draw us to that God principle within ourselves, like a, awareness, a recognition of of how God intercedes in our lives. How does he do it? He does it through us. I mean, we understand that. That's in our own theology, that we are his hands, that we are the acting principle of God on the earth. It's through us that acts of service are done. It's through us that you know works of love are done. It's through us that people feel loved 
and part of a community of Christ? That's how God intercedes here on earth, is through us, through the God in us, our better nature, through the Christ. So there's more to this word, as in, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, than just this capital W, that O-R-D, that replaces G-E, you know, capital J-E-S-U-S, right? That, 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 That they stand one for the, yes, Jesus is the word, and yet the word is God, and God is with Jesus, and Jesus is with God and with the Word. And I'm just, I'm riffing on First John 1 at this point, right? There's more to this than meets the eye. It doesn't say in the beginning was Jesus. And by the way, this wasn't the interpretation of the early church fathers who actually recognized the Heraclitian nature of this, this these writings. And remember, these um, these writings, whether it be the, some more than others, especially Matthew, was well-versed in Greek rhetoric and philosophy. And John has been compared even to the Bacchae of Euripides, which doesn't mean that he is, he could be, he actually could be taking that story, which is familiar to his audience and repurposing it and sort of pointing in a different direction with it instead of to Dionysus, to Jesus the Christ. And yet it could just be, as Jung would have it, this perennial wisdom that just pops up. It shows up in in Euripides. It shows up in John, the beloved. And there's a truth behind these words, whether they come up now or later, earlier, from one or another, whether it be by his voice or by the voice of his servants, whoever they may be. It's, it's not up to me. It's up to, well, it is up to me. It's up to me through the Spirit. Right, to discern because the Spirit testifies of the truth of all things. And we're talking about the same truth, expressed in different words, in different times, in different contexts, in different places. Well, you bring up this perennial wisdom, and you know, Eliade would say that the history, in order to be memorable, has to conform to the archetype. If it doesn't, it falls out of the collective memory. And so, yeah, you know, that's essentially what I hear you saying is that whether it's a a repurposing or retelling of an old story, it doesn't matter. Uh, The story is still true with different characters. Yeah, it's important to keep in mind when it comes to the biblical authors that they're not actually trying to be historians, especially not in the way that we think of and understand history today. That wasn't available to them, that wasn't part of their experience. And even if it were, that's not their project. It's not ideal either in communicating no, not. wisdom and truth and and spiritual knowledge. It's not ideal to just recount historical events. It's much more ideal to communicate in a way that fits how we understand morals, like the moral of the story morals. And that's the way we understand them is in the context of certain patterns of stories. And so you have John hearkening back to the Genesis account and essentially setting up his description of Jesus as the Word very much in the pattern of how God created heaven and earth in first Genesis. Very much so. Yeah. And, you know, pointing us to these archetypal ideas and pointing us ultimately to an experience of of God, of the divine such that we can fully experience the divine for ourselves. Yeah, another example of kind of what you're hitting on there is that both Clement of Alexandria and Justin Martyr, who were in the first and second century following Christ, um, they acknowledged the truth behind Heraclitus and his ideas, and they actually thought that he would make a good Christian. You know, what they're essentially saying is these truths don't have, you know, time constraints. And they don't belong to anybody but God, right? Truth is, well, you know, in some sense, uh, the truth is one of God's names. Out of the 99 names of God in Islam, al-Haq, the truth. Christianity, too, the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life, yeah. So how do we access this Logos? How do we read our scriptures the way they were intended. I mean, here there's a there's a clue in the in the question, right? I'm I'm, I'm going to let you answer too, Riley, but I'm going to give my own answer first since I was begging the question there. You know, if we understand what the scriptures are doing, 
and we can we can read them and it was done and they have to be reinterpreted as so we talked about this in our episode on the importance of the church right uh, of a church i think is what we said the importance of a church not the church but this idea of the ecclesia the calling out the gathering of the of the people of god uh, of which we're a part or of which we which we at least hope to be a part right we're a member we're, we're a member right of the body of christ exactly so Again, these are images, and they're archetypal images, and they're psychological images. I think Heraclitus gets it right, and he stands out among the pre-Socratics for taking that approach. That's not a metaphysical approach. That's very much a psychological approach that sees the the microcosm in man that reflects the macrocosm of the, the, the wider universe that he's a part of, and yet not separate from. Separate and not separate. If you're If you're a wave... Okay, yeah, you stand alone as a wave, but you're part of the ocean, and you go back into it, and there becomes another wave, and you see this pattern was recognized by Heraclitus, it was recognized by the early church fathers, and you can recognize it too, it's easy to recognize. And if you come out, I had a, I had a, a conversation with, with someone, I, I won't name him, I don't, this was a private conversation, where he says he woke up one day, and he and he and he just because there's this concern about being a wave, being an individual, right? And he says he woke up one day and he was the ocean, and he wasn't concerned at all, because the ocean includes the wave, and the wave is a part of the ocean. And so I think that's what this idea is pointing to—to to this greater sense of what God is, and who we are, and our relationship to God, which is not separate. The reality is that God is always with us. This is the metaphysical reality. What's our what's our experience? What's our epistemological awareness of this? That varies. So back to your question, how do you access or participate in the principle of logos? Yeah, so one thing I was getting to is, you know, in reading these scriptures and understanding what they're doing is that they're not telling history, they're telling stories. And these stories are true. I'm not saying by saying they're not history that they're not true. The scriptures are always true, and sometimes they're historical. But if they're historical, it's probably incidental to the the point that the scriptures are making, which is stories that teach us something about who we are, about who God is, and about our relationship to God. And so we have to go into them with the intention of finding that out. If we're looking for history, there's history books, and they include archaeology, and they include so many tools that weren't that were not available to John or any of the other disciples, and which again, by the way, they wouldn't have been interested in anyway, because they're not writing history. That's not the point. So that's one answer. And I, I agree. I mean, I, I think what it does for me when you ask the question, how do we participate and access this principle of logos? With all we've described about what Heraclitus thought it meant, what John seems to be communicating to us, um, Yogananda and others, is that there is a there's a relationship between these opposites that is real and not real at the same time. And putting aside our judgments and attachments to outcomes as it relates to one or the other of these pairs of opposites is sort of the key to experiencing God in his purest essence or spirit. So essentially bridging that gap from the the material, the scientific, the rational, and and taking that and bridging the gap between that and the, the mystical, um, unknown, ineffable truth of, of the eternal, infinite nature of God. I'd like to share a quote, Riley. You suggested I do this, and I think it fits right here. You know, if if in listening to this conversation, anyone feels like, I have no idea what these guys are talking about. It, I, they've introduced me to this idea of the word, and I just don't get it. Heraclitus saw it coming. He's got you covered. He said, and this is the first fragment of Heraclitus, the word, and he does use a, the translator uses a capital W. This is the logos. The logos proves those first hearing it as numb to understanding as the ones who have not heard. Yet all things follow from the word, or the logos. Some blundering with what I set before you try in vain with empty talk to separate the essence of things and say how each thing truly is, and all the rest make no attempt. 
they no more see how they behave broad waking than remember clearly what they did asleep. The Logos is something to ponder. The Logos is something to contemplate. The Logos is not something where you just read 1 John 1 and you just say, oh yeah, word equals Jesus, the end. Oh, there was a fruit in the garden. They ate from the fruit. Okay, and the extent of your conversation is maybe, I wonder what fruit it was. It's not, <laughs> right. it's not a fruit. It's a symbol, right? It's a symbol. And it becomes much more interesting to ask something like, what does that mean? What is the meaning of the logos? What is the meaning of the fruit? It's not just logos equals Jesus. It's not just fruit equals pomegranate or who knows what, the apple. No, it's what does it mean that they ate a fruit? What does it mean that, that, that what followed? What is the logos? And these are questions we have to ponder, we have to contemplate, we have to meditate on, we have to pray and ask, and we have to seek the guidance and influence of the Holy Ghost. The spirit of prophecy and revelation by which these ideas were given is the only key to unlocking them. Along those lines, you know, the thought that comes to me is that as you, as you called out with this idea of fruit, that there, you can extend that to anything. All manifestations, all representations of reality in the form of the matter that we bring in, it's all symbols. And by saying that, I don't mean that they are mere symbols, that they are, no. you know, that they have no meaning in and of themselves. They're not mere symbols. Everything is a symbol. It's all symbols. Yeah, especially in words, right? When you're talking about words. I think it fits here to talk about the idea of conceptualization and how that works. You know, we, because you think a chair is a chair. No, it really is a chair. No, look, there, there's, it's arbitrary. When you say a chair, it's arbitrary. You're, you're taking, you're ignoring the things that are different. Let me go table instead. You're ignoring the things that are different. Some have three legs, some have four, some are round, some are oval, some are square, some are rectangular. And you're just focusing on what's the same. Okay, they have legs, whether it's three or four or six or whatever. Whether And they have a, a surface upon which you can act or place something or use the table in the way that a table is meant to be used. But you see, I'm using the word to define the thing. And you just pick these things out at random. And if I ask you how many things are in this room, you start to say, oh, yeah, there's tables and chairs and whatnot, but where does one end and the other begin in reality? And yes, you can have this logos, this language, this way of, of let's face it, arbitrarily separating out reality into separable parts. But at the same time, it's both and at the same time, that's not the reality of things. The reality of things is that it's all one thing and it's just arbitrary. The only reality is everything. We think that this is solid and that's not, and yet it's all vibration. And, the, and at, the, at the quantum level, we know that it's just mostly empty space. And so you can see where it's possible that you could walk on water, that you could walk through walls, or that you could walk through a crowd and not be detected. How many things are in this room? Am I counting the carpet? Am I going to count the fibers in the carpet? Why am I ignoring those? Why am I not counting the atoms? Aristotle gave us the, in the categories how we divide up the world, and we, and we took it, and we, t we swallowed hook, line, and sinker, and if we're not aware, if we're not part of this conversation that we're, that we're bringing to you, then you might just think, that's all there is, but that's really arbitrary, and it really was something Aristotle came up with that becomes part of who and what you are and how you think without even maybe even knowing who Aristotle was, and there's more to reality than that, and there's more to God than that. And we're so conditioned and uh, created in that space that it, it has become part of us to understand the world in that way. But I think one of the beautiful things about Scripture that has been retained are these instances of miracles, because the miracles point out exactly what you just talked about. That is that these things are not so concrete as we like to make them out to be someone who has mastery or command over the concepts of matter as we experience them can also subject them to his will. And so you have someone like Jesus literally coaxing Peter out onto the water and Peter believing that this can actually happen because Jesus has command of the elements. Uh, or you have, you know, even today you have master yogis who will tell you they can levitate 
you know, all this is is an example of the idea or the symbol of all of these categories of things really just being part of one great truthful whole. It's the whole that has any reality. If you'll allow it, Riley, I'll agree with everything you said and take out the literally and have it both ways. That's, that's just something I say without even thinking about it sometimes, but you're right. Okay. All right, then. Well, this has been a great conversation, Riley. I hope that this has done something to open up the logos to you, our listener, and, and that it brings to your awareness possibilities beyond those prior to this conversation. Be open to those possibilities. Yeah, it's been enjoyable for me. Even in this short space of an hour, it feels like I've learned something more about the experience of logos versus the concept. And so, you know, I look forward to maybe having that experience at some point to really have logos manifested either within me or be sensory for me. I'm not sure how that's going to happen, but uh, I look forward to experiences. And that's what this podcast, I think, is all about. Yeah, I feel the same way, Riley. Thanks. Because in the end, you know, we're just two talking heads here using words and pointed to something beyond the words. And we hope that you look to that reality beyond our words, to that reality, and have that experience of the divine. And and I hope for the same for myself with you, Riley. Thank you for having this conversation with me. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. Have a great week. 